Well, Spanish translation this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And welcome again, everyone. It's great to see you all. We are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 6. And uh, we are having a great time going through the book of Nehemiah, taking big chunks at a time because there's a lot of narrative history here. So there's a lot of uh, Nehemiah going back to his memoirs and, and either taking chunks of it and, and putting it in here or gathering it. We believe Ezra was probably uh, the author along with Nehemiah or uh, even him and just alone. And Nehemiah, from you guys that are just joining us, is the timeline of Nehemiah is about 455 B.C. And this is really right at the end of the history of Israel. And so uh, in terms of the Old Testament. So we have Nehemiah, we have Ezra, and we have Esther all sort of happening around the same time. And really what the book is about is Nehemiah is about this guy named Nehemiah who is just a solid a trusting, selfless man that believes the promises of God. And we could look at the book of Nehemiah as a metaphor for our lives on what we're called to do, on how we're called to obey God according to his promises to us, not just to keep us and to save us, but his promises to bring this world back into its original order without sin, without chaos, Okay, that's what Adam's job was in the garden. He was to take this garden paradise and he was to tend it. He was to guard it and he was to expand it out to make the whole entire world that dwelling place of God. But sin came in, the serpent. Adam let that little slithery guy into the garden while he wasn't looking and he caused mankind to turn away from God. But God was not done with them. He wasn't done with us. He created the line, which we call the, the, you know, the, the, the covenant that he promised, that through the line of Adam, through his seed, through the woman's seed, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Messiah would be, his seed would be preserved. And the, that Messiah is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died and rose again and sat at the right hand of God in complete authority over all of creation, what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit to live in us. So we can now have that vocation reestablished that Adam had to go out and push forth, bring forth, build for, build toward, however you want to say it, the kingdom of God, the work of God that God is doing. And so Nehemiah is this great picture of what we're to be like as we build for the kingdom because what's Nehemiah's job? He's to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The temple's already rebuilt and now he has to build the walls around it. Now the other really cool thing about the, this book of Nehemiah that is really jumping out on me is, uh, is not so much uh, the, the metaphor or the comparison, which is an amazing uh, comparison between Nehemiah's vocation and, and his trust in the Lord and, and God coming through and providing everywhere for Nehemiah that he guides Nehemiah to, to, to that. But also this, this book shows the amazing love of God towards his people. The amazing love of God towards his people. If you, I don't know when the last time you've been through some of the pre-exilic books in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel, 
Jeremiah, Isaiah. These books that are, these are prophets that are talking to the people of God saying, you have messed things up so bad. You've, you've went after other idols. God compares it to committing adultery. And he cuts these people, and he cuts them, and he punishes, and he disciplines his people. But he always promises restoration. Yes, and he's giving us a, a glimpse of this in the book of Nehemiah, that he is providing restoration for his people. He's bringing them back to the land. He's fulfilling his promises, and he's doing it because of his love and because of his righteous name. Now, Nehemiah has been through a lot. Um, he's had attacks from without, uh, Sambalot and Tobiah threatening him. These are the rulers of Jerusalem. What's this guy coming in to rebuild the walls and trying to reestablish the nation of Israel? He has opposition from within. His own people that have been there, camped out for years, are taxing the poor, their own people, taxing the poor of their own people, <clears throat> leveraging the problem for their own benefit. <clears throat> so we learned there's, there were sinful hearts even back at the time of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah is dealing with all of these things. And now in chapter six, he comes up again with opposition, but the opposition starts to get more and more and more threatening. And so in chapter six, we're going to read about a different type of opposition. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this is psychological. And so in verse one, I'm going to go. Now, this is now this is a, let me just take a side note here. This is a long passage of scripture for most of us that are used to coming to a church and maybe hearing one or two verses here. Or what. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but again, because of this narrative story of Nehemiah, this historical narrative, we have bigger chunks of scripture. It's not like where we could live on one verse in John for a week and then take the next verse and, and preach on that for two parts and three parts. So it's really important that you not only, this is the word of God, the whole Bible is the word of God, but also in your own time, <clears throat> make sure you go through this stuff. Because if you're just coming here on Sunday morning and this is the first time you're reading Nehemiah 6, it's going to be hard for you to grasp it as opposed to if you had already read it last night <clears throat> or even in the morning before. Sunday morning is no excuse for not doing your devotionals. It's actually even a better time to do your devotionals on Sunday morning before church because you'll prepare your heart for the word of God and the fellowship and the communion of saints and all those things. So I better get to the passage. So Nehemiah chapter six. So now when it was reported to Sambalot, Tobiah, and to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had built the wall, rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, then Sambalot and Geshem sent a message to me saying, come, let us meet together at Kepharim in the plain of Ono. <clears throat> and so, yeah, Ono, because the plain of Ono is like, you know, if you're out in, in Las Vegas and Joe Pesci invites you out into the desert, you know, for a meeting, you don't want to go and meet him out there because you know this is a desolate, you know, part uh, of Las Vegas where you're probably not going to return. And that's what Ono was like. It was about 20 miles east of Jerusalem and it was a desert place. It was, one of, it, it was equivalent to the Wild West back then. There were lots of bandits. There were lots of problems. Nehemiah, in his mind, probably knew this was not a good idea. And he did. He says it right here. They were planning on harming me. But verse 2 at the end, it says, but they were planning to harm me. 
And so verse three, I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now, again, this is Sambalot and Tobiah. These are his enemies through the whole book trying to get that work to stop. And they did this four times. And he answered them in the same way every time. So four different times he sent a messenger, come and meet me out here, Nehemiah, to Ono, okay, 20 miles east, out in the desert. He says no. So what does Sambalot do? This is typical. If, if somebody, especially a leader or somebody of importance, sent you a message or a telegram and you didn't respond, they would then actually send a, um, you know, an, uh, uh, well, I guess a telegram is something that you would read. They would actually come with a specific message. And in this time, he brings, in this time, he brings an open letter. Listen to what it says. Sambalot then sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Now, if somebody back then brought an open letter, <clears throat> that would mean that what's in that letter <clears throat> is purposely showing you that everybody's going to know about it <clears throat> if the letter was open because the seal was, was not on there. <clears throat> so if I brought you a letter and I only wanted you to read it. I would put my seal on it. And if it came to you and that seal was broken, that person would die for opening that letter. But he was actually commanded to open this letter. This is, again, that's why it's called an open letter, had no seal on it. And it was written, it's reported among the nations and Gashmu. Now, Gashmu is just like the formal name of Geshem, uh, the Arab. It's like saying, you know, Jonathan as opposed to John. It's his full name. That you and the Jews are planning to rebel. So this is what they're trying to say. They've been using this against him. Oh, you're building the wall. You're going to rebel against the king. And that's why you're rebuilding the wall. And you're going to, you, he says, you are going to be their king. So they're accusing Nehemiah of wanting to be a king, according to these reports. <clears throat> you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. That's what a prophet, that's what a king would do if he was going to, you, see, you remember the story of David and, and all his sons who wanted to be king, you know. I believe it was uh, Absalom who went, went out and hired prophets to, to say, oh, you know, there's a king. They blow the trumpet and all this stuff, and they rally. They try to rally the people. And that's what they're saying that Nehemiah is planning on doing. And then he says, and now with this open letter, it'll be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. And this is the, the nuance in this is that, look, come on, let, I, I can help you out with this. I'll make sure this doesn't go as, as wrong as you want it, as you think it could go. I, I'll cover you here. And so he sent a message to him saying, <clears throat> Nehemiah sent a message back saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. I love his straightforwardness, boldness. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will, we, that we will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. And then Nehemiah again, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah is a great example of prayer. If you want to learn about prayer and you haven't read the book of Nehemiah, I highly encourage you to do it. Because we see all sorts of prayer in Nehemiah. We see long prayers, short prayers, urgent prayers, prayers on the spot like this. Just, Lord, please strengthen my hands. And I think this is God showing us how he wants us to interact as well. But that's beside this point. But anyway, verse 10. Then, then Now, this is a different thing that happened, probably right after. He enters into the house of Shemaiah, 
the son of Delaiah, the son of Metabel, who was confined at home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. <clears throat> and, and they are coming to kill you at night. And so this was sort of said like he walks into the house. This guy's a shut in. He can't really move around. He's, he's stuck in bed. And he, he's not saying, oh, let's go meet. He's saying, what are you doing? Let, let's, me and you right now, we better go meet in the temple because they're coming to kill us. And no one's going to kill you in the temple and spill blood in there. But let, let's go there. And Nehemiah sensed something here. It says, you'll see what he said. He perceived it. He said, I, should, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into temple to save his life? This is a sin against God to go into the temple if you're not a priest. I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they may have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Excuse me. Remember, oh my God, again, another prayer. Tobiah and Sambalot, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadia, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So there was a big force of people coming after Nehemiah, trying to intimidate him. And then in verse 15, we sort of, Shift gears a little bit here, but still part of the same thing. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month. Uh, Elul, which is uh, in our calendar, is about the sixth month. It's around August, um, September in the Hebrew calendar. It's um, uh, the 12th month, the civil, civil calendar. So they finished it in that month. In 52 days, they built the whole wall. And so the whole wall was finished, meaning now it wasn't just the, the wall halfway done. It was fully built. The doors were in. The gates were there. Everything was there. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they re, uh, recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and the son of Jehohanan, and had married the daughter of Meshalam. You got all those, right? The son of Barakiah, to add more to it. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobias sent letters to frighten me. So, so basically, he sh this last part is to show you that this wasn't a problem that was going away. Tobiah had influence with people, even that were part of Nehemiah's clan, because he had been ruling there for a while. So these frightening letters kept coming. And so that's what the last part of this was to, to, is to be about, is that this, this frightening, this threatening, this discouragement didn't stop. So what do we get from all this? So many different places we could go. But really, the main character here is obviously Nehemiah. And we see repetitiveness throughout this. The one thing that they're trying to do is stop the work. They're trying to frighten him. They're trying to psychologically intimidate him. They're trying to use the king against him. Now, remember, Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. He was friends with the king. He knew that this whole thing could collapse at every, any single given moment. But Nehemiah had something that we all need to have as Christians, and that is a very big, broad, broad wide topic, discernment. Now, what <clears throat> you know what discernment is. If you've ever had a conversation with someone and 
maybe something they believe to be true about God or the Christian life. They said something and it just gave you a check in your spirit or maybe some unrest in your mind. Maybe it was when they began speaking, uh, you know, about their lifestyle that, you know, doesn't match up with what the scriptures teach. And they're telling you these same things and encouraging you to do these same things. And you get that discernment. You get a check in your spirit. Now, discernment can be natural or it can be spiritual. In other words, you don't have to be a Christian to have discernment. Okay, if you're, you know, walking down a a street uh, in midnight and, you know, there's a street that's, you know, here and your car is on that side of the street and you're walking here and there's like a group of people that are just partying and hanging out. And, you know, what are you going to do? Discernment tells you if you're by yourself, walk on the other side of the street. You don't need Christ to to, to have that necessarily. It tells you it's that instinct. But spiritual discernment is what we're talking about here. This is the ability to judge the truth well by sensing non-truth, non-biblical truth. It could be the ability to see scriptural truth behind the picture of the words you're hearing. So you hear words, you're you're impressed by a situation, and you're able to see through that and behind that. Now, don't get me wrong. Spiritual discernment is not having psychic ability, a gut feeling, you know, the mystical premonitions that people say they have. Oh, wait a minute. I have a weird feeling. Something bad must must about to be ha- happen here because I have that feeling. And the last time I had that feeling, this happened. And then the time before that, you know, that's not discernment. All right. That's witchcraft. Okay. <laughs> Spiritual discernment is rather a sensitivity by the Holy Spirit that just gently pokes your God-given moral conscience. It gently pokes at it. And you get the little beep, you know, when, you're, when, you, when you hear that non-truth. Now, there's also the gift of discernment, which is an extraordinary gift. One of the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit are supernatural gifts. And that's where you're able to supernaturally have the, that's a gift of the Spirit that comes upon you. It allows you to determine and, and detect the truth of a situation even in a better way. And then you just have the simple discernment that comes from being a believer in Jesus Christ. And this is because, as I said before, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. So there's no one here that's a, that's a believer that can say that I don't have at least a degree of spiritual discernment, regardless of how uh, disorganized you think you may be or how, you know, you consider yourself this type of thinker and people that are discerning or this or whatever. No, it doesn't matter. As a Christian, there's no excuse. You have the ability to discern truth because you have the, you have the Holy Spirit in, in us. And so we get this word discernment, from, uh, the English word from the Greek word, which means aesthetic, where we get the word aesthetic from. And so that means like a moral insight or perception with the practical application of knowledge. Now, so what's aesthetics? They're a set of principles concerned with the appreciation of beauty. That's what an aesthetics are. When you see something that's beautiful, you say, wow, that appeals to you because of the aesthetic, because of the symmetry, because of the art that's behind it. But something could be off 
in that aesthetic if it has a poor aesthetic and it gives you a jolt. I, I love using movies as a, as a best example because you could be in a movie and you're really into it. You're, you're living through the character and then all of a sudden that character's acting skills or somebody else comes into the scene that doesn't act as well and it breaks the aesthetic of the scene and it takes you out of it. And now you know so you could see something's wrong. See, that's sort of what discernment of spiritual discernment is like. All right, you, it, it's spiritual discernment is, it looks for the aesthetic flow of biblical truth and senses when something is off with that picture. And so Nehemiah has been using spiritual discernment from the very beginning. Remember when he, uh, he planned to go to, when he went to Jerusalem, he said that he, what he was planning to do, he kept it all into his own heart. Even when he was walking around the walls of Jerusalem, he didn't tell people, hey guys, this is, look, we're going to do this. We're gonna... No one knew what he was doing. And that was a discerning, wise, smart thing to do. Because if he did otherwise, it, it could, could have turned into sin. It could have turned into turning the project upside down. And so in chapter six, he is faced with deceptive psychological attacks, but his spiritual discernment prevents him from making some huge mistakes. And this is what we have to get from this, because we're all faced with deceptive tactics, deceptive attacks from the enemy. I hope you realize that. I was talking to somebody yesterday who I don't believe was a professing believer, and we were talking about the enemy. And, um, you know, he was, uh, he, he, he was saying that he believed in it, but he was a very impressionable guy. So I told him, I said, you know, I forget who said it. Maybe it was, maybe it was C.S. Lewis about, you know, the two errors as it relates to the spiritual enemy. You either don't believe he exists, and that's a major error, that there is not a satanic, demonic spiritual wickedness, spiritual force that we cannot see that is a hierarchy of all sorts of, read, you know, Ephesians 6. There's all sorts in the demonic realm, sorts of levels. I guess you could compare it to any other military operation. You know, so the other thing is that we think everything is demonic. And so you have to realize that Satan is smart. His schemes are deceptive. And by nature, deceptiveness is deceptive. Deception is deceptive. So you don't know you're being deceived. And so this is what we all are faced with on a regular basis. We are faced with enemy attacks. We are faced with decisions that we have to make, sometimes quick, sometimes slow. And we must have spiritual discernment. And so Nehemiah had spiritual, how did he have it? A couple different ways. First, we, we looked in the beginning when Sambalot and Tobiah start to try to bring him letters to try to get him to meet him out into the Ono place. And Nehemiah's little radar went off and he discerned the lies and he also discerned the false threats despite the potential risk. Because again, this isn't, a, this isn't as easy as we think it is. Oh, Nehemiah was called by God, and oh, you're trying to trick me, I know, because you're my enemies. No, this, this was a, you know, this isn't something that Nehemiah just said, no, that, you know, that's it. He was focused on the will of God, but God has done stuff before. Maybe God's turning the heart of Sambalot and Tobiah. Maybe they really do want to, 
you know, talk to me. Maybe I can go out there and negotiate with them and try to calm them down a little bit. He did not go. He did not doubt. He knew he wasn't being treasonous. He knew the king sent him. He thought back on the truths that he, that he knew. God sent him. God provided for him. God guided him there. If, if he went, Nehemiah would have appeared to be doing evil. He would appear to be compromising. And so one thing we have to know about our enemy is deception is his number one tool. What does the Bible say that Satan is like? He's like an angel of light. That's what I hear a lot of people say. Satan is an angel of light. But that's not fully true. Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. So angel of light means angel of truth, somebody that is godly, somebody that's coming to you to try to help you, to try to guide you. I don't, and, and it's not just him appearing to us. It could be through other people, and it's especially through our sinful flesh. And that's why Satan wants to get you off course and off track with God. Because as soon as you make a little compromise, he knows now that you're, that you're really going to be open to more deception. So if he can get you just to move a little bit, then he knows that the deception doors are open. And so the first thing that we have to accept is, is that we have to humble ourselves and realize that we can be deceived. Again, by nature, deception is deceiving. Self-deception is also something that's true. We deceive ourselves into thinking we really believe a certain thing, but we really don't. We really don't. We're deceiving ourselves. We've built up a, a, everything on the outside that looks like a building, that looks like a tower. But when the scaffolding comes down, it's revealed what's really under there. Self-deception. How do we deceive ourselves? Well, first things first is that we, if we deceive ourselves, if we're, if we're involved in self-deception, we're in sin. Something is causing us to believe the lie that we're telling ourselves. We know the word of God is, is what the word of God says, but we gradually convince ourselves that it says something different. And this is when people say, oh, they're, 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 they're compulsive liars. They believe their own lies. That's not like, uh, uh, that's unconscious when they do that because they're so used to those little tiny itty bitty compromises, tiny itty bitty lies that they are saying, yeah, well, maybe it's not that bad or maybe it's not that bad. And before you know it, they've turned into a completely different person. What they believe is true and what they believe is false. So Satan, he disguises himself as an angel of light. If you want to read that, it's 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15. But Jesus also says something really powerful about Satan. It says that he's not only a liar, but Satan is the father of lies. So that every time you say a lie, you're doing the work of your father. Now that is deception. That is deception. John 8, 44, talking about the Sadducees and Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of him. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in truth because there is no truth in him. There's no truth in the devil. That's why he's the father of lies. 
All right, so his goal is to lie to you. Do you know, you got that, right? His goal is to lie to you. Your enemy's goal is not to harm you. Your enemy's goal is to kill you, render you useless, render you ineffective for the kingdom of God. Take your eyes off of Jesus Christ. Take your, guys, take your eyes off of what God, where God has you. God has led you to the very place that you're at right now, but what you're saying is you're believing the lies. Maybe he doesn't have me here. Maybe, maybe I'm, you know, I need to go back. Maybe, maybe I made the mistake. No, go to the word of God. What does it say? Well, if you go to Nehemiah, you, could, you ask him, I guarantee you he would say, no, you know what? I'll never forget that, Pat. God had me on my knees for four months praying and weeping and fasting. And I thought for sure, man, he, I haven't heard anything. And then I sat before the king one day and I just prayed to the Lord. And the, and the king saw that I, was, I looked a little sad and he asked me what I needed and I told him and now I'm here. Please, Lord, strengthen my hands against this enemy. Yeah, see, that's what he's doing. Nehemiah is not a superman. Nehemiah is just an empty vessel. He's an empty vessel trusting the Lord. I love when he says, what kind of man am I? He goes, uh, you know, he says, should a man like me flee? So I, I assume Nehemiah was probably a tough dude. He was probably looked tough. He probably was tough. He probably was not some, you know, wimpy guy. So when he's getting these threats from the enemy, he's probably going, oh, like, man, I got to stay here, right? I, I can't, I want to go after these guys. I want to go knock them out. I want to go get, uh, you know, at night like David did and send a group in there and take these guys out and be done with it. But he doesn't. He trusts the Lord. And we'll talk about more about that in a minute. How do you detect a counterfeit? How do you detect deception? By knowing the original. We talk about the counterfeit counterfeit money i'm not an expert on it but i i've read a couple articles online okay so i'm an expert yeah don't yeah don't confuse i tell people don't confuse your google search with what the real scriptures say and pat don't confuse your google search with what, what real you know counterfeit the dollars are but what they say is and this is a really cool for this preaches very well is that these counterfeit experts, which Chris probably knows more about that, uh, is, is they don't study the counterfeits, they study the original. They study the original dollar or whatever, or $100 bill or whatever is being counterfeited. And that's what we have to do to avoid deception. Jesus said, you were deceived because you don't know the scriptures. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. So we must be immersed in truth. Man, if you're feeling like you're, 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 you're trying to pray to the Lord and you're looking up and, and, and you're feeling like nobody's listening, if you're feeling like your wheels are spinning, if you're feeling like, you know what, I don't even have a taste, uh, uh, not even an appetite for the things of, of God right now, then where you have to go first is the word of God. It's motion before emotion. You can live your way into right feeling, but you can't feel your way into right living. You can live your way into feeling the right way by doing what you're supposed to do. We got to stop being wimps when it comes to the word of God. 
We have to go to the word of God. Like we go and get our food, like we take care of our bodies. We have to, whether we feel like it or not, get in the word of God. And that's your number one protection from being deceived. And so test the spirits too, John says in 1 John 4. He says, by this you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, <clears throat> of which you have heard that, is, that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. The spirit of the Antichrist. This isn't the dispensational view of the Antichrist coming and sitting down and, and, you know, in the temple. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people that are against the gospel of Christ, saying opposite things on what it really means, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, this was a Gnostic heresy, that he was just a spirit. And that, would, that just wipes everything out. So test the spirits. How? By the word of God. Realize that Satan is an angel of light. Yes, he transforms himself. But how do you avoid his schemes? By learning about his schemes in the word of God. And learning how to put on that enemy or the um, armor of God. So... Nehemiah, secondly, he, he didn't move ahead of the Lord. And I sort of already borrowed from this a little bit. He didn't retaliate or try for revenge. All this frightening and discouragement and all this stuff. He knew it was God's problem. And if, if we could just grasp this, that this, the problems that we go through, okay, like Jesus, basically Jesus said, it's, God, it's the Father's problem. I'm going to empty myself. I'm not going to try to go out there and be equal with God and try to, do, nope, I'm, I know who I am. I'm going to empty myself and I'm going to trust the Lord. And boom, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's what happened. And so empty, trust, don't seek avenge. See, the enemy wants to provoke you to a fight, but don't do that. Self-control. I see Nehemiah exuding self-control. And we know what self-control is. It's the anchor of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit, a part of, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit, right? All the different fruit of that, that's listed. At the end, we have self-control. Because we need self-control in order to exercise the fruits of the Spirit. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so we need to have self-control. In Proverbs, uh, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Isn't that cool how they say it, like a city without walls? See, Nehemiah had just built the walls. Nehemiah knew, these, knew the Proverbs. But it's like, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. If, if Nehemiah didn't have control over his spirit, those walls would have stayed down. He, and this is Proverbs 25, 28. The next one's Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than he who captures a city. <clears throat> so Nehemiah finally gets in, in front of this false prophet. Shemaiah. Now, Nehemiah goes to this guy, and this guy tries to tell him that God is telling me, Nehemiah, to tell you. 
You're going to have a lot of people in your walk with the Lord tell you, this is what God told me about you. Or you're going to have people tell you in your walk with the Lord that things that you know to be true from the scriptures aren't really that way. It's partly true, but not fully true that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And, and you'll like the two groups that do this are the more like the two most popular groups are the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, whom are great people, human beings. When you, you know, and believe me, I'm not talking personally against anyone that's involved in that in those in those religions, but they're not true to the word of God. They don't believe that God, that Jesus is fully God. But a lot of the stuff they talk about sounds really good. And I have to tell you, I mean, it's sometimes you get talking to these guys and you're like, wow, he's saying all the right stuff. But if you know, if you look at rat poison, if you look at the, the ingredients, what does it say? 99% good food. If you look on there, 99% of the ingredients in rat poison are good food you can eat. It's the 1% that's the poison that kills the rat. And it's the same thing with bad theology. False teaching and false prophets know the word of God. Know the differences between truth and feeling. Understand what the Christian life really means. The Christian life truly really means that we are to live, like we started out today, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How do we do that? By committing to Jesus and the Lord that God, I'm going to obey your word going forward. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to waver anymore. I'm not going to be perfect, Lord. And God's going to say, duh, grace. Because we think of grace before. We're like, all right, I'm sinning and I got grace, I got grace. No, no, God's saying, hold on, no, you got it a little bit wrong, okay? I converted you. I made you a new creature. Now you are able to see that. You're able to see the kingdom of God. You're able to profess Jesus Christ. But now you have to take the action and live for me. And that will be a natural thing. And I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to get you over all the bumpy roads, all the gravel roads, everything, the mountains and all this stuff. That's grace for us as he carries us through. It's grace from the beginning. He saves us by grace. And it's grace all the way through. But if it was all grace without you at all, after you get saved, it's called sanctification. If there was no sanctification, uh, it would be God, I believe, would just be a puppet master. He wants us involved. He's a God of present reality. He's a God of here and now. He's the God that's with you. In, he's, he's with you. He's in you. And he takes you through whatever it is you're going through. He takes you through. So we lack. How do we? Why do we lack spiritual discernment? Well, in Hebrews, it says this, for though, this is 5, 12 to 14, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, have their senses trained. Their senses are trained to discern good and evil. 
You're not training your, dis- your, sur- your discernment muscle. You got to train discernment seven days a week to failure. Okay. Seven to 10 reps are fine. <laughs> but you have to train that, those spiritual muscles as well. Nehemiah had discernment in interacting with his opponents when they were trying to discourage him. Who's discouraging you? Who's trying to discourage you right now from your walk with the Lord? He had discernment in not moving ahead of the Lord. He had self-control. Are you trusting the Lord for self-control? Are you trusting the Lord for the fruit of the Spirit? Discernment detects lies. And know this, when you have lack of discernment, 99.999% of the time, you have sin. So when you lack your discernment, you will find yourself falling into sin when you lack your discernment. I love Ezekiel 44, 23. It says, he's talking about the priests. Moreover, they shall teach my people between the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. You are the priests of God now. You are a priest unto the Lord. Okay, that's what... That's what the Bible says you are. And so what we are to do is to teach, to proclaim the gospel, to help people discern good from evil. But we are the ones that are to go out before we are to teach it. Those priests, they needed to know the word of God. They needed to know the law of God. And so this is what we have to do. We have to make sure we know the word of God, that we are so in tune with God I mean, we're never going to sin or never going to make mistakes, but we have the discernment. And this is what Paul says. He gives us, God gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gift of discernment. Some of you have the gift of discernment, a supernatural gift from the Holy Spirit that, that really allows you, you have to be more careful than anybody. Because when you know you have that gift, again, God uses the gift when he wants to use it. But you got to be careful that it's not you that's going and discerning everything and prophesying about everything you see and everybody. You, you got to go make sure the foundation is the word of God, is, is your word of God. And Nehemiah has said to have written this path, this chapter, some commentators, I thought this was, was cool. He said that, that it's, he seems to be writing with narrative omniscience because he says things like, oh, they were just trying to harm me. They were trying to discourage me. Like he knew what was going on. And so we have to remember that the Holy Spirit was guiding Nehemiah's hand here, as we know. But also the Holy Spirit was upon Nehemiah. The Holy Spirit, God's hand was upon him, not only to do the things that he did, but to write the word of God. And so you must have the Holy Spirit in order to have discernment and not quench it with sin. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit in John 16 will lead us into all truth. He won't speak on his own initiative, but he'll speak what he hears. And so you have to be sure that you are walking with Christ, that you know Jesus Christ. More important than your spiritual discernment is your rescue from this current evil age that we are in. That's intersected with the new age to come. The evil age is being cast and torn away and it is passing away and the new age is becoming newer and newer and more fruitful and more fruitful. 
If you know Christ, you're part of that new age. You're building for the kingdom. If you don't know Christ, you're part of the descent. And if you're being deceived by the enemy, he's saying, no, it's okay. You're a good person. You've done great things. You're, you're a, you're a, uh, you know, you know God. You go to church. You pray. You tithe. You do all these things. But I'm asking you, yes, you know about God, but do you personally know Jesus Christ? And to personally know Jesus Christ, this is how loving he is. This is how gracious he is. He says, come to me. That's it. Just come to Christ. Open your mouth and say to the Lord, I come to you, Lord. I give you, I give you all. And then turn from your sin. Jesus is going to give you a new heart that's going to give you discernment about sin. And, and then you're going to be on your way to becoming more human than you've ever been in your whole entire life. But that is up to you now. You're hearing the gospel that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to the right hand of God according to the scriptures. And he's returning again to judge the living and the dead. May you be able to profess and may you be able to discern from now until then what God's will is for you and for your life. And I'll pray for that right now for all of us. Father, I pray that you would give us discernment, that we would realize the severity of this issue of truth versus lies. And Lord, that we wouldn't allow the enemy to give us um, lies that would cause us to be off. But Lord, we, we have won the victory in Christ. We, we are, I know I, I'm praying, Lord, as, um, as if it's all us, but we know it's, it's really all you. And so we, we, we ask that you would give us the ability to, to work through our sanctification. God, as, a, as you do your work of the Holy Spirit. And I, I pray for anyone here that is struggling with that, doesn't know you or knows you and, and wants to grow closer, they're struggling with sin. Whatever the case is, Lord, I pray for them and present them before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's all stand together. We're going to sing our last song. Mm-hmm.